0: Yeah, I think um, safety probably is the one word working on. How do we keep our students, faculty, and staff safe? That's that's really top of mind. And uh, so coming into this, I thought about really guiding principles, five guiding principles um, through the pandemic. One would be, you know, the first one, safety first. Second one is protect the core: students, faculty, and staff. We have a mission here to carry out as a land grant. University and uh, higher education, and that means uh, Protect the Core Mission, which we did. We graduated 12,345 students with degrees, certificates, um, and others' credentials. So I'm really proud of that. The third thing is to be flexible. I think that's one thing we all learned. And in terms of crafting policies and plans, uh, we need to be flexible because we can get guidance from local health department or from the CDC that you know changes what we might contemplate doing. Right. Second one is is to deliver the best possible education with the resources we have, um, and you know I think that that we did that. There was we had to fortunately we had the CARES Act funding and funding from federal and a very very strong budget. So. Um, but we were pretty efficient, you know. We did a lot of uh, operational efficiencies work, and uh, and then um, I think the, the fifth one—I'm trying to remember the fifth one. Those four ones were pretty much the big ones, so I'll leave it
1: at that. But yeah, makes sense. Is there a moment over the last year that um, stands out as being—I don't know—maybe the most challenging moment? Um, I'm sure there are plenty in such a, a weird year. But does anything stick out as being? particularly difficult to oh, yeah. try and figure out, you know, how do we navigate this? That's really easy. I can tell you
0: exactly where it was. I was in this office, and it was August 31st, it was the day before it started, and our positivity rate hit 6%, and I thought, we're going to have to shut the campus down. So that was that was hard. But what I did was I had formed a reactivation task force, RTF, and we met every morning so I consulted with the members of the task force, and, and we had a scorecard and we had um, a dashboard, I should say, a dashboard, uh, looking at positivity rates, transmissivity rates, the ability to quarantine, isolate. You know, um, we did, had mandated a mask indoor and out, which wasn't the case, and we reduced our class sizes which I'd like to get to anyway, um, to under, to 50 or under. Mm-hmm. So that's a goal for us to get to uh, over the, the next decade. Let's, let's have you know, all our classes under 50, so we'll work on that. That'll be a good challenge. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of the things that we did, but there are a couple of key things we didn't do, and then we did do those going into spring semester, made all the difference. One is um, the students coming back. So I was going to start September one. Mm-hmm. And we, uh, Veronica and I got here end of July. And I thought, okay, i just got to start because whatever happens in this next month is going to be crucial to whether we stay open or not. Right. So, you know, I can get settled and not start and then live with the consequences, or I can just start and then figure out how to get settled later and live with those consequences. Right. So, you know, that was a decision to make, which, which is obviously the right one. So getting to work early, we didn't require our students to test before coming in. So, and we really had contemplated only testing, I'd say, lightly, 300 students a day. So, uh, we ramped up to test 3,000 a day pretty quickly and we, we stood up Friday, I remember this, August 14th, with the 1,000 and then we started to build. A lot of the students had already started to move in, they were still continuing to move in. So we missed a little bit of that baseline of knowing, were there students that were positive and identifying them going through quarantine or isolation to stop the spread. And so it ramped up. Now we quickly, you know, started testing, started quarantine, isolating, what masks we'd already been, you know, mandated the, the mask wearing. But at 6%, I really had to think about, when you think about 6%, that's like uh, 120 students a day. Hmm. You can't go too many days before you start to run out of beds. That's where... So we knew what that number was. It was 830. 830 beds. That's all we had arranged. It sounds like the a isolation lot. beds. Yeah. Okay. Isolation and quarantine. Okay. Beds. So I knew that we had a window. And uh, looking at the data, looking at some of the models, you know, I felt, well, we could hit that first week in September. But if everybody masks And so we started with great communications with Ben. And and others really getting after the message, look, we're together as Buckeyes, please wear your mask, <clears throat> stay physically distant. And a lot of those things contributed to, we just crushed that down. Just got another little blip, kind of end of October. Mm-hmm. And then that's when Franklin County, early November, turned purple. But we ended up, you know, we, we stayed open the whole semester. Then what we did is for spring semester, we sent everybody a fault test. And then we could get a good baseline and then we tested again when it came back. And the difference is, is that we were able to take that six percent and drive it down to low. On campus it was 0.2%. Mm. Off campus it was 0.3%. So altogether it was a you know about 023 percent We got as low as 0.17%, which at that point you kind of wonder if the accuracy of the test starts to come into play, because mm-hmm. they're not hundred percent. Right. Now it did go up a little bit. We saw it rise a little bit in February, March, but for the most part, we kept it under one percent the whole semester. So I think it's really important to hit it hard at the beginning, and that's what I learned. But yeah, that day, August thirty-one, can it, you know, I was thinking, well, I don't really start till tomorrow. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I could always leave. <laughs> uh,
0: so it was uh, uh, so that was a tough call to make, but mm-hmm. I decided to stay open, right? And just count on the community come through, and they did. They're great. Students were great faculty and staff. I thought it was
1: really good. And now I, a lot of people are saying like pandemic's over and it's clearly not. It seems like we're just in a a very different season of the pandemic and trying to navigate that. So, you know, I've been reading a lot of universities, COVID policies, and I've read your guys's. So, you know, going into this next semester, what's the game plan? I'm sure that safety is still top priority, but I guess, have there been any you know, changes in course, or how are we navigating it now, knowing what we know? So we are going to do a lot of the
0: same things we did uh, at this time last year. So we are sending out tests to all our students, and then we will test again when they arrive, whether they're vaccinated or not. Uh, So that's one thing. Two is we've asked is, I don't know if you saw my uh, sent a memo out last week, but I can get it for you. They're basically saying that um, we want everyone to report so that we can understand, you know, if we start to see an outbreak, we're the vulnerable population. Mm-hmm. So, and we've been pushing our, our vaccination. So the different, big difference, obviously, between this year and last year, we didn't have a vaccine last year. And we didn't know if there was ever going to, and people were saying, oh, it's going to show up by, by you know, December. I'm like, you yeah. know, mm, that's optimistic. And it did, right? It's pretty amazing. I think it was December 8th or something. So now we have that vaccine. And what we're doing is we're really pushing hard on the communication, trying to ask everybody to get vaccinated. <clears throat> and so right now, as you know, it's there's emergency use authorization. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not mandating it yet for the campus, but I am really encouraging people, unless you have a you know, medical or religious reason for not getting vaccinated, get vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And it's working. We're at about... Seventy-five percent, almost exactly seventy-five percent, of our entire community that's either been completely vaccinated or single vaccination, and seventy-two percent have been completely vaccinated, mm. and it's gone up a couple percent even this week. And so part of that is just reporting. We had five thousand more people report they got vaccinated this week. Wow! Yeah. So we, you know, what is our goal? It could be over eighty percent. So we're really close. Um, People don't realize this, but we had 13,000 or more students in residence on campus last year. Mm -hmm. We're only going to have 15,000. So we're really as densely populated in the residential halls as we were last year. Now, in the classrooms, uh, we are keeping all of our class sizes below 100, which was the plan of record before I I moved it down to 50. Mm -hmm. Um, So that, that seems strong. And we'll just see what happens as these variants of concern, and we're looking at that every day. So, um, as we see something that looks concerning, we're going to make a policy change and say, okay, you know, let's let's uh, you know do a few things we did last year, and they kept the, the vaccine and the uh, positivity rate low. Yeah,
1: and not just at Ohio State, but a lot of the universities that I've been covering it's interesting because, you know, on, on a university campus, it can kind of feel like a bubble sometimes. Yeah, like, right. you know, everything's right here. You have your own zip code. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you're also in the middle of a, of a giant county in a, in a city where, you know, not everyone's necessarily listening to yeah. your mandates because they don't have to. Right. So how do you balance, you know, keeping your students safe and trying to push the vaccine when, and getting 80% vaccination rate here on campus within the, this community, while in the midst of a larger community that might not right think as uh take that as seriously i guess
0: well um so the best thing i can do is really encourage our students to get vaccinated mm-hmm. because um and that doesn't mean you're not going to get it actually there are two presidents that i just learned about yesterday that have been vaccinated and got it mm. difference in, in the it, big 10 or just in general uh in general gotcha. yeah and one was reported in inside higher ed um and another was someone that you know let me know um they are quarantining well, they're isolating for 10 days, which is, you know, the CDC guidance has changed from 14 to 10. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but they're, it's like getting a mild cold. Well, that's a whole lot better than being, you know, being hospitalized or worse, right? Right. So we had, um, and, and I think that's what, uh, if students get vaccinated, the, the likelihood that they're going to have any kind of, problem is so small that it's just worth getting vaccinated. I can't mm-hmm. encourage that enough. That really is our protective layer. If you will,
1: mm-hmm. you know,
0: first, first, le- first level, I would say. So really pushing that and staying alert, you know, seeing, uh, again, going back to that principle, looking to local state and, and um, federal guidance
1: and be prepared to make a change as as that, you know, as the data dictates. Right. Thinking back to February with your first State of the University address, yes. um, I was curious specifically about um, your efforts to increase tenure staff, specifically through right. um, the RAISE initiative, mm-hmm. did I get that right? Sure. So I was curious where, I guess, benchmarks on that, where are we at with trying to increase the number of tenure staff on right. campus? Yeah, there are three major initiatives that I announced in the uh, State of the University Address. One was the
0: faculty really looking at academic excellence. So the measure of any university is the quality of the faculty. Because they attract the students and they are gifted and they can help do what I said in the State of the University Address, create opportunities for students from ordinary backgrounds and extraordinary backgrounds, do extraordinary things, mm-hmm. right? So they, that's, that's where you start. And what I recognized was just over time, we had, we had reduced our tenure-track faculty by about 200, but it increased our undergraduate enrollment by about 5,500 students. So we needed, now we have backfilled with that by having larger class sizes, which is not what we want, and higher student-faculty ratio, which again is not what we want, but with adjunct part-time faculty, which have been superb and great, it's just that full-time faculty, it's a balance. You know, do, I ask the question, do we have the right balance between full-time and part-time faculty? Mm-hmm. And I, we need to invest in our full-time faculty. So I put a goal of about 350 net new. I mean, we're hiring probably about over a hundred faculty every year. We're also losing faculty. And so we want to invest in academic excellence for, for recruitment, retention, and, um, really promoting our faculty and their 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 scholarship. So RAISE is part of that and we're looking for RAISE's race and inclusive program focused on race and social equity and six pillars. Right? And so we are in the process of bringing on a new provost. And I said in my state of the university address that the hiring plan for those 350 net new faculty, including RAISE, will be, uh, it will be her responsibility in case this is uh, Melissa, Dr. Melissa Gilliam, uh, to develop that hiring plan in concert with the deans. So that particular initiative is in the planning stage. Mm-hmm. We don't want to miss a recruiting cycle, so we're going to roll that out this fall and look for, I mean, we won't have the entire hiring plan done, but this is over a 10-year period, right. so we get kind of the, the bones of it in the first semester. And there's a lot of organization and then you know recruitment of folks that we want to uh, come to Ohio State. So, obviously, it's, it's race and social equity and education, with an emphasis on STEM, the environment, healthcare, uh, the arts, environmental resources, public safety, um, and social justice. So, those are the six areas. I think I left one out. Oh, leadership. Um, and then the second uh, initiative talked about is, is putting in place the resources to double our uh, research and scholarly activities. Part of that will be funded research, extramural, intramural. Part of it will be enhancing the scholarship and creativity that our, our faculty, students, and staff can do together. And then the third one is the debt-free bachelor's degree. And again, this, these are 10-year goals. I, because I think that you can it's going to take 10 years or seven to ten years to do something
1: yes. um, else. As far as College affordability, I mean, the debt-free bachelor's degree is uh, a huge step forward um, in trying to make college affordable for more students, and this is clearly going to be a long-term process. What can the university or is the university doing now to help make college more affordable for these ordinary and extraordinary students who want to be here? right. So one of the things we've done
0: is the Open Educational Resource Program. So I probably would have started about the time you were graduating, but it's looking at textbooks cost our students between $1,200 and $1,500 a year. So over four years, it could be $6,000. Over five or six years, of course, it's more. So the I, what we did was we invested about $4 million, which reduced the cost of textbooks for students by about $20 million over that same period of time. It was about, I think it was a three-year period. And we were able to convert only about 1% of our courses to alternative materials that aren't expensive textbooks. Mm -hmm. So that's what open educational resources do, is they provide a way to get the same content and material, but at a lower cost. And we've also been, um, now with with the uh, digital uh, flagship initiative that Mm -hmm. we have, since every student is getting an iPad when they come in, you can download those materials. So you'd see a day where you get the iPad and you get sort of... um, Books in a box—that's a—I think that might be even a trademarked um, item by uh, Barnes and Noble. But you have uh, all your OER materials on your iPad, so you may not have to buy any tech- textbooks. That'll be huge, and I factor that in. So, in order to get to, to the debt-free bachelor's degree, um, about half will be from philanthropy, but the other half will be from student support. So, getting you know well-paying internships and opportunities for students to earn uh, enough so that they can put some towards education. Mm-hmm. It's reducing the cost, like with OER. It's being more efficient with our resources, including our financial aid. And uh, the last one, it's relying on state, local, and federal help, which this year's budget, legislature and the governor you know, gave, gave a huge investment to all the higher ed in the state of Ohio with the OCOC program, the Ohio mm-hmm. College Opportunity Grant. That's that's huge. That'll increase to five hundred dollars over two years mm-hmm. per year. So that's an additional twenty five hundred dollars. And I've only targeted about four grand for state, federal, and local towards the debt free initiative. So we're well on our way there, thanks to the generosity of the state yeah. and legislature. So yeah, so we see a pretty clear path. Um, it's not a free tuition, and it's not a free college program, and it's not a one off debt forgiveness because the problem with one-off debt forgiveness is it's just going to build up again
1: Mm -hmm.
0: right so let's invest in programs that are ongoing and create value Mm -hmm. that's why we're we're looking to raise like i said about 45 percent from philanthropy some of that will be annual fund that people give the others will be endowment Mm -hmm.
1: so pretty excited about that Mm -hmm. Just to follow up on that, um, it was interesting after I I wrote the story about the uh, state of the university address, a lot of people were emailing me saying that they were really frustrated with the idea that, you know, a student could go to school and not have debt walking out, you know, because when they went to college, they had debt and they paid it off and they worked really hard. So this is clearly different than just saying it's free to go to college here. How do you explain that to someone who, you know, might be frustrated or might not fully understand the concept of like, you know, yeah, we're I, trying to walk out of school debt-free. Exactly.
0: So we'll officially launch this initiative later this year. And during that time, what I want to, a lot of it's around education. So at the time, uh, you know, I went to college and graduated debt-free. Mm-hmm. I had a little bit of loan. I was able to pay it off pretty quickly. But the cost of going to college at that time for me was one tenth what it is today. And At the college I went to, Mm -hmm. Uh, that wouldn't. One is I'm old, but two is, uh, uh, but, but my tuition was six thousand dollars a year at that time. Now I went to a private university. Now the tuition is probably fifty or sixty grand. Right? You're not going to be able to pay that off. Our average. So this is the this is the issue that I think. We we have reduced the percentage, which is awesome, of students that that graduate with debt. It's about forty seven percent. Was fifty three percent about five years ago. That's a big move. Uh, it's on average, our students graduate with a, a little over twenty seven thousand dollars in debt. That has gone down from almost twenty eight thousand. So we're making moves in that way, but we need to be bolder mm-hmm. and really be focused on it. So. You know, you graduate $27,000 in debt. What we're finding is the following, that in surveys, our students that graduate with debt, and that's the average, that means there's some less and there's Mm -hmm. some a lot more, right? Our students uh, are making different choices in their careers. Like, if you're a student in a lower-paying career, you may choose not to go into that career, yet we need, as a community, as an ecosystem, as a country, individuals that can follow their passion, no matter, you know, what. the the salaries are, Mm -hmm. right? Well, how can you do that if you have have that much debt upon graduation? So they're less likely to go to graduate school, they're less likely to uh, invest in their community right away by buying a house, or uh, they're less likely to start a family. I don't think that's fair. I, I really would like to see our students have whatever choice they want to make. They're less likely to go to graduate school, and that's because you know, our graduate programs here in our professional schools also have a lot of debt. Mm-hmm. A lot a much more debt. So we're gonna start exploring that as well. I just don't want to saddle young people with debt. I want them to have all the choices that I had. So what I would say to folks, I, I hear you, and we're not talking free college, and we're probably talking about students contributing the same amount that they did. It's just that the cost is so much more now. Anyway, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much.